everybody. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Pastor Jim, and if I've never met you before, I'd love to meet you after the service today. We're continuing on in our four-week series on church membership and what that looks like and what God expects from members of the local church. And so for this third week, we're going to be in two places. Primarily, we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 5, which is found on page 954, if you're using one of the chair Bibles in front of you. And to help us better understand this text, I want to make an analogy between the church and our legal system. When you think of our legal system, you think of the different parts and the different roles that people play in that system. And let me think, let me give you two main categories. I know it's more complicated than this, but let me give you two basic categories. And thankfully, they come to us in compound words to help us understand them. You have the lawmakers, the ones who write the laws, the ones who create the laws, the ones who enact laws, and then you have the law enforcement officers. The first category makes the law, creates the law, the second one enforces the law. And when we think of the church, by way of analogy, we have God and his word as the lawmaker. Christianity is more than a collection of commands, but Christianity includes commands, things that God expects us to do, a way of life that God expects people to live because he is God. But the question becomes, who are God's law enforcement officers? Because we all know that God's laws are broken even in the church. And so who has the responsibility to uphold the commands of God? Now part of that answer is with the elders, and we're going to talk about the elders next week. But... When you read your Bible, I think it becomes clear that one of the main functions of the membership, the members of the local church, are the ones called to uphold God's standards. Again, to use an analogy, the church, the members of the church are God's law enforcement officers. And just like someone who is engaged as a law enforcement officer, it is a job that is not always pleasant, but it is necessary. And I want you to keep that in mind as we talk about the topic of church discipline. Because it is a job of the membership to practice church discipline as a body, as a family, 
and it is often unpleasant, but it is also necessary. So keep that in mind as we read through and understand what God is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And here's our big idea. That the members of a church, the members of a local church, have the responsibility to uphold the commands of God through church discipline. So let's look at point number one, cast out the sinner. Look at 1 Corinthians Chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 1 to 13 on page 954. Follow along as I read. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you, rather, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Here's the problem in the church in the city of Corinth. There's a man who is in an inappropriate relationship with his stepmom. I won't go into details. You understand what I'm saying. And the problem is is that this sin is going on in the church. And look at Paul's question to them in the middle of verse 2. Ought you not rather to mourn? He's saying there is this sin among you. And notice, look how he describes that sin. A kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. He's saying this sin is in the church and it's a sin of a kind that even the unbelievers in your culture, even they don't tolerate it. And so by implication, they are tolerating it and they're not mourning it, meaning that in some way they are affirming it and possibly even celebrating it. And where does this come from? It comes from an arrogance. An arrogance of not recognizing sin for what it is. And instead of the appropriate response to sin of mourning and repentance, they are affirming this behavior. And Paul instructs them that this person who who claims to be a member of the church, we're going to get into that more later, but this person identifies as a member of the church in Corinth. And Paul says at the end of verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. This is a phrase used in your Bible to often refer to the church and a local church. That there is a group within a city or within a geographic location that is recognized as being the local body of Christ in that location. And so Paul says, in essence, this man needs to be removed from the local church. 
because there is not mourning over his sin. There's not, at least especially from him, that there is no repentance from this inappropriate relationship with his stepmom. And because of that lack of mourning and repentance, he should be removed from the body. But here raises the question, why? Isn't that the first question? Why does it need to be done? Why something so unpleasant and potentially hurtful be done? And the rest of the verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is going to be Paul showing the Corinthian church why something like this needs to happen. Why it's necessary for this hard thing to be done. So the first reason is in verses 3 to 5. And the reason for removal here is the salvation of the sinner. Follow along again as I read verses 3 to 5. This is Paul speaking. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Paul is writing with the full authority of the apostle and is saying, look, I know what this guy did and what he is doing is wrong. That's what he's saying when he's pronouncing judgment. With the full authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he is saying this relationship is inappropriate and wrong. Verse 4, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, this is hard language. And we don't need to deny that. But what you need to see in the midst of this language, verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that, good purpose word right there, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. One thing is clear here and throughout the Bible that whenever church discipline is done, and hopefully church discipline is done rarely, because we need to be quick to be repentant of our sin. But when a church, when the members of a church do something that is unpleasant like this, it is never out of revenge, it is never out of spite, it is never to win. It is for the good of the person who is living in unrepentant sin. Again, look at the end of verse 5. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Part of the reason we do church discipline is so that people have a witness that the unrepentant sin that they are living in is in fact sin. In one sense, one reason that, that when there is unrepentant sin, that removal must take place is so that this person 
will have witnesses against the behavior that he is doing. So it's not just a friend of his saying, look, you should not relate to your stepmom in this way. It's not just the elders saying, look, this relationship with your stepmom is inappropriate and wrong. It is all of the different members of the church lining up as witnesses saying, what you're doing goes against the commands of God. The other reason that it helps this person is because oftentimes for discipline to work, there must be consequences. You see this in disciplining a child. Now, unless you have a really, really good kid, you can't just say, don't do that, every time they do something that you don't want them to do. There comes a point where they won't understand it unless there's a consequence. So a great consequence is, if you do that, you cannot watch Netflix later. Right? There's a consequence where you have to go to your room. For the teenagers, you get your driver's license taken away. You know, one time when I got pulled over, this is way back, I don't get pulled over anymore, but some of you know that's a little stretch. Um, but when I was living with my folks, I got pulled over for speeding, and when I got home, I knew that the cop knew my dad. In fact, the cop's kids were patients of my dad, so I knew there was no hiding this in our small community. And I just took my driver's license and I just put it on his home office desk because I knew that's what was going to happen. And sometimes when a church member is caught in sin and refuses to recognize it as such, one of the ways that we help them understand the sin is by giving a consequence. that the reason that this helps them repent and turn to faith in Christ is because they've experienced a consequence of their behavior that comes not just from a couple people in the church, but from the church as a whole. It helps them take seriously. You know, it's easy to dismiss one person. It's easy to dismiss five people. It becomes much harder when you're dismissing 50. And again, we focus on the reason. The reason is not merely to punish. The reason is not merely to win an argument. The reason is so that they would have repentance and faith and be reconciled to Jesus and reconciled to the body. When church discipline has to be done, we always do it for the good of the person. The next reason for removal 
is not just for the person involved in the sin, but for those in the church community. One of the reasons the church is called to practice church discipline is for the protection of the church. Let's look at verses 6 to 8. Your boasting is not good. By the way, again, that helps you understand the context of what we're talking about here. They're arrogant and boasting about this sin. We don't know exactly how they're doing that. But it shows you how serious this is that, in a sense, they're almost proud that this sin is happening in their church. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. For our our time here this morning, I want to focus on particularly verse 6. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Okay, let's think about the metaphor here. Making bread. Okay, don't picture it too much or you'll get hungry for lunch. Okay, we're we're almost there. But taking the simple fact that when you're baking bread... You only need a little bit of yeast to make the bread expand and become regular bread. Right? Compared to the other ingredients and compared to the final size of the loaf, there is relatively little leaven that makes the raising, the rising of the bread happen. And from other places in Scripture, there are times where sin is used um, is talked about with this metaphor of yeast or leaven. And so here's the idea that, that a little sin can have big effects on the whole lump. Sin can have effects on the whole church. You see this in parenting again where oftentimes it's not your good behavior that your kids or grandkids mirror. It's the character you don't want out in public that your children or grandchildren choose to imitate. In the same way, the sin of one person, again, in particular this man who has an inappropriate relationship with his stepmom, can have devastating effects on the whole rest of the church. And so for the protection of the other people in the church, this man's influence needs to be removed. Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You need to begin to see a pattern that, again, when the time comes where it is necessary to engage in this type of process, and we pray that, that we, we live as a church that does not have to do this often, 
but it's for the good of the person engaged in the sinful behavior. It's for the good of those who are in the faith community with him. I mean, you think about the kids of the church at Corinth, and here are the adults boasting and bragging that there is a guy in the church who's having an inappropriate relationship with his stepmom. What are the kids learning? That this is something to be honored and boasted about. And so for the sake of the whole, the leaven needs to be removed. It's unpleasant, but sometimes necessary. Third reason that removal must sometimes take place is found in verses 9 to 13. We start in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. He's saying if you live here, you will associate with people who are these categories, (laughs) who are sexually immoral, who are greedy, who are swindlers. He's saying, I'm not telling you to isolate yourselves from them because to isolate yourselves from these people, you would have to leave the planet. So who are you not to associate with? Verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. What Paul is saying, the distinction he makes, is between those who profess faith in Christ and those who don't. And in some ways, we should expect this type of behavior from those who do not profess faith in Christ. But, the description here should never be a description of a believer. Again, this is, is a person characterized by living a life of sexual immorality or greed, or an idolater, or a reviler, a drunk or a swindler. Is this, when you think of this person, this is who this person is. When we look back at verse 11, when he says, with anyone who bears the name of brother, the translation, New American Standard, translates this as a so-called brother getting the idea across that this person only professes faith but does not actually have faith. He is a hypocrite. And how do we know? From his life. His life testifies against his profession of faith. And that they are not to associate with someone who lives in this way, but who calls himself a follower of Jesus. 
And we're going to come back to this, but look what it says. Not even to eat with such a one. And we're going to come back in a second to what does it mean to not associate with someone? What does discipline look like? And I want to give you some ideas to help your thinking on that. But we have to again ask the question, why? Why is this so important? And I think the reason that this is sometimes necessary to do is to protect the witness of the church to the outside world. There's the old saying that goes something like this, that the only Bible some people will read is looking at your life. Okay, and what that recognizes is that when people see how you live and how you act, what they are seeing to them is how a Christian should live and act. Okay, they may never read a Bible, but if they look at you and say, okay, this is how you're acting, you say you're a Christian, therefore this is how Christians act. So, in this example, you have someone who says they're a believer, but is living in a way that is totally against anything Jesus commanded. So the witness to the people in his community is a false witness against Jesus. They're saying to themselves, well, he says he's a believer and here's how he acted. I guess that's how Christians act. And so who's hurt in the process? The people in the community who are not followers of Jesus. Sometimes church discipline is done to correct false witnesses to an outside world because we are being watched by our neighbors, by people in the community. And if we claim to be Christians, they are going to look at us and say, okay, what does it mean to be a Christian? And sometimes church discipline is necessary because If we don't do it, we are giving a false witness to a watching world. We are not representing Jesus as Jesus wants to be represented to a watching world. Again, I hope you are seeing the theme of how sometimes church discipline is necessary for the good of those Involved, the person in sin, the people in the church, and the people in the outside world. And that it's not pleasant, but sometimes it's necessary. And it needs to be done by the church as a whole, or it won't work. I want to say a few things about what it means not associate with someone under church discipline. Because again, the goal is for them to come to repentance and faith in Christ, as it is our goal with all people. So the first thing I want to say is that the relationship must change. Just as he says, if you were to not associate with an unbeliever who acts in this way, you'd have to leave the planet 
you will run into this person. And, and you may have opportunity to share the gospel with them. But here's the biggest thing. You can't pretend like nothing happened. You can't ignore the elephant in the room. That church discipline was done as a consequence to sinful action. And secondly, related, the relationship must now more explicitly center around the gospel and repentance. The purpose of discipline is to bring about repentance, so we must not act in a way that would communicate there's no need for repentance. Again, that will be awkward. But again, it's for the good of that person. When we see them at the store, we don't ignore them, but we, don't also, we also don't ignore the problem because we want for best, what's best for them, and what's best for them is for them to repent and be reconciled to Jesus. It may sound counterintuitive, but church discipline is one of the most loving things we can do for somebody. Now thankfully, in 2 Corinthians, flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. That's on page 964 if you're using one of the chair Bibles. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, there's debate as to whether this is referring to the same story. It probably isn't, but either way, it's a picture of what we want to see when the church is engaged in church discipline. Let me start reading at verse 5, chapter 2. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So again, we get a picture that the church as a whole engaged in church discipline, that reference to the majority. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or may, he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Again, we're not given all of the details, but what we can surmise from the text is this. That this person, again, whether he's the person of 1 Corinthians 5 or not, this person came under discipline of the church and he has now become repentant. He has recognized that he has sinned and has repented of that sin. And now Paul calls, again, the church as a whole to welcome him back with forgiveness. This is what we want to happen when we have to practice church discipline as a church. That the members are both involved in the consequences, but again, as a whole, we are involved in welcoming back with forgiveness those who have repented. And this happens when we do it for the good of the person because we love them and do not want them to be separated because of their sin. Let me close briefly with three applications. 
Number one, we need to recognize sometimes that removal is the godly thing to do. It's not pleasant, it should not be frequent, but there are times when it must be done for the good of the person, for the good of the church, and for the good of the outside world. Number two, church discipline is a job for the whole church. The pattern is often that church discipline is initiated by the leaders of the church, but if it's not practiced by the whole church, it won't work. We have to be united in calling sin, sin, and calling for repentance and faith in Christ. And thirdly, church discipline requires humility. We pray for humility for both sides. One, that the church that practices church discipline would humbly recognize that they are doing this not to win, not to punish, but to win back a brother or sister in Christ. And there's also prayer for the one who is under church discipline that they would come in humility to repentance and faith in Jesus and be restored back. Friends, this job is often not pleasant. It's not fun. I take no joy when I've seen it done. But it is necessary sometimes. Again, for the good of the person, for the good of the church, and for the glory of Jesus as it protects the witness of his people to an outside world. And this is what we are called to do as members of a local church. Let's pray. Father God, grant us humility to follow your word, to, when necessary, engage in church discipline for the salvation of the one who is in sin, for the good of the church, and to preserve the witness to those who do not yet believe in Jesus Christ. God, grant us a deep love for each other that knows that sometimes we must do what is unpleasant but is right and help us to do so with love and humility. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.